2: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's all-star panel, returning to the roundup is Molly McHugh, who's a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of a newsletter called greatpower.us. Molly, it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me back. Also returning to the Roundup is the fantastic, the fabulous Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist and tech founder and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, welcome back. Hi, Ron. Hi, Molly. On this week's Roundup, ongoing debates in Congress over raising the debt limit and passing the Biden agenda, the latest in the fight to get tech giants to reveal their data, the struggles of women and the LGBTQ community in Afghanistan under the Taliban regime, and finally in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about the first round of subpoenas issued by the January 6th committee and who they're honing in on. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. It's been a whirlwind week in Washington. We're recording this on Thursday, which is the self-imposed deadline the House Democratic leadership set to vote on the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that Democrats and Republicans had reached an agreement on the stopgap measure to fund the federal government through December. The Senate is set to vote on that today to avoid a government shutdown. And there's also the looming threat of the debt ceiling. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned lawmakers on Tuesday that if Congress does not raise the debt limit before October 18th, the U.S. will default. Republicans have continued playing chicken with the debt limit, calling for Democrats to raise or suspend the limit through the budget reconciliation process. And on Tuesday, Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin—so that's the number two-ranking Democratic senator—called that a non-starter. And his reasoning was that it would take three to four weeks of activity in the House and Senate to get a bill through reconciliation, and we just don't have that amount of time to get the bill passed. But the Biden agenda is hitting a roadblock during negotiations. Progressive House members want a firm commitment of some kind, whether it's a top-line number, a policy direction, something from Senators Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin on the larger $3.5 trillion Build Back Better spending bill before they agree to vote for the Roads and Bridges infrastructure bill. And Manchin and Sinema have not publicly disclosed what it would take to get to a yes vote on the larger package. Sinema is negotiating directly with the White House and leadership. And the anecdotes about her negotiating style, except from mostly progressives who are unhappy with her, are complimentary and she's reportedly been digging into the policy details and has been asking a number of questions all summer. According to Sarah Jones at New York Magazine, Mansion and Cinema haven't given Biden, their colleagues or any or the public any insight into what it would take to get their support on the spending package. Lucy, what should we be reading into the reluctance for Mansion and Cinema to outline specific changes they'd like to see in the larger spending bill?
0: Well, it's hard to say, especially with cinema, ever the mystery. I think Manchin is...
2: Your hometown gal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Go Sun doubles. Um, I think Manchin, look, he's from West Virginia. He's in a state with, that Trump won by crazy numbers. He's an old coal guy. These aren't really his bread and butter issues. He's a little bit less of a mystery than cinema, who, you know, came... Up in in politics, at one point fl- flirting with the Green Party, and came up through the Arizona Legislature in a time with very very sharp Republican majorities. Um, rising star Democrat, uh, and and became a senator in a really historic race um, by very tight margins. But really, herself is the symbol of the transition of a state like Arizona from a kind of firmly red state to a state that's decidedly more purple. And we saw that in 2020 uh, when Biden beat Trump in the state. And I guess, again, last week when Biden beat him, uh, beat him again, <laughs> bending the, the, <laughs> that's <right>. the recount. <laughs> um, but so cinema. it's it's hard to figure because on the one hand, there's some indication that she is not behaving at all in the way that her constituents want. Uh, the Arizona Democratic Party actually has given her a vote of no confidence now But on the other hand, there's a a, a school of thought that she really, really is trying to toe the moderate line. And so when I try to understand the kind of mystery that is the inner workings of Kirsten Cinema, I do think a lot of this comes down to something that is actually consistent in her political rise, which is that she was trying to work with the other side. She was this um, this trying to move more moderate. She was a person who was breaking bread 10 years ago with the author of SB 1070, one of the most draconian immigration bills ever, right? And so I think over time, she had an evolution where she thinks, I have to show that I'm hearing all sides. and But she's always been basically in the minority. She's always been the underdog. She's never been in the party in power. And I think that she is either not built for Mm. being in a majority or she doesn't know how. There's some polling to suggest that maybe what she's doing makes sense in terms of what voters in Arizona want. She's not up again until 2024. A much better litmus test of whether or not what she's doing is working will be when her junior Senator Mark Kelly is up in 2022. Um, but I also think, honestly, I think she enjoys the clout and attention that comes with being the holdout. She's had multiple meetings with the Biden administration this week, and she's getting an audience that she would not have if she were just going along with it.
2: Okay. So I I, I think there's probably something to that. My t- And my take is maybe a little bit more flattering to her than maybe a lot of our listeners would want to hear. But I I I kind of see this almost like old school style of negotiating playing out with her that I that I that I appreciate because she's made it a point multiple times to say I'm not ne- going to do this via the press I'm not going to signal all, I'm not going to try and litigate this in the press I am going directly to democratic leadership and the president and and like asking questions. She has some serious reservations. I think about the substance of a lot of the bill and, um, and I, I kind of bristle at the criticism of her for not saying a number, just putting it out into the ether. Like this is the number that I'm comfortable with because if I'm in that position, I want to know the details of the bill really well before I, and I want to understand what it's going to cost to get there. And decide whether or not that's good for Arizonans before I say, "Yeah, it's going to be two point three four five trillion dollars like I don't know so so i I sort of appreciate that about her, and I wonder if you see any any bit of sort of John McCain's maverickness in the way she's approaching this.
0: That's interesting. I actually bristle at the idea that. None of this that all of this should happen in negotiations with each other, and that you know this the the media is not the time to litigate this stuff. Mm. Stephanie Murphy, who's the co-chair of the uh, Blue Dogs Coalition, a Democratic House member from Florida, gave an interview yesterday that was really disturbing, where she wouldn't give her number, her equivalent number on what would make her feel good about all of this stuff, and she said, you know, that the media is not the place for this, and I thought the hell it is <laughs> i'm in general in favor especially after the last 4 years of the previous administration optimal transparency all the time and the reason that some politicians don't like to be transparent is that the conversations that they're having behind closed doors are about the political realities or the realities of who their supporters are or you know considerations about how this will impact their reelection chances or some special interest group that they've made promises to mm-hmm. last time around. And we can't air all of that stuff out, but I think we should air it out as much as we can. And I think it's actually the opposite of McCain. I mm. think that McCain tended to be a person who stuck it out there much more, stuck his neck out much more in terms of this is my line in the sand. And that's the thing, whether you agree with him or not, you knew where John McCain stood and we don't really know where Kirsten Sinema stands. She has at times been in favor of raising the minimum wage, in favor of this, that, or the other thing. And now we have no idea where she stands. So wherever she comes down on this bill, I think Arizonans deserve to know what her preconditions are are on these bills.
2: I think that's all fair. Okay, Molly, a lot of people talk about these debates from a domestic angle uh-huh. uh, as we are doing now, but, but we've seen this happen before. Uh, you know, It wasn't that long ago that the S&P downgraded the U.S. credit rating because of this, the same fight that we had in 2011. How do these debates shape how we're viewed around the world? And how does something like this, you know, coming to the brink of a shutdown, getting this close to the debt limit, impact national security? And basically, why does the rest of the world care whether or not
1: we raise the debt limit? Well, so, I mean, the bottom line is the U.S. economy is the driver of the global economy. Like, yes, China, yes, Europe, yes, blah, blah. But, like, really it's the U.S. economy and everything else is contingent on that. And when we decide to screw around, for example, Mm -hmm. by no longer being able to service our debt, which we have a lot of debt— Not only would it be a, I believe, as Janet Yellen would say, cataclysmic event for the U.S. economy, which is something that Republicans just walk right past when they're talking about this issue, Um, uh, but it would have ripple effect, cataclysmic events in economies across the world. And um, that really matters for our long-term economic relationships with all of these places, for our markets, for how our relationships go. That's because they buy dollars, right? Well, because everything is in dollars, but also our trade—you uh, okay. know—the re- the rely and the and sort of in the in the broader environment where you had the strange erosion of U.S. power and clout, uh, sort of the the doubt that came in the Bush administration because of some of the things that happened around the Iraq War, the erosion of U.S. power under the Obama administration, uh, which they refused to see or understand. And then Trump, which was like a spike in everyone's eyeball mm-hmm. except the far-right goons. Mm-hmm. And now you have Biden, who's kind of just like third-term Obama, as everybody sees it, if you're one of our allies or or others. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what any of this means. Like, oh, you really mean America's just gonna stay home and focus on its bad water or whatever, and you're not actually gonna be out here. Oh, great. Like we're not we're not into this. And so there's this nervousness about the US retraction from the world. Uh It's really nice you want to go and talk about human rights, but if you're not out here, shut up. We don't give a crap what you're saying. And I think Americans have this blindness to this because we are geographically isolated, mentally isolated. It is sort of the American history and way, Um, and sometimes in very good ways and sometimes in really destructive ways. And this is one of these ways in which this is catastrophic. And so starting in 2010, you had this new class of Republicans who knew nothing, who got elected altogether, And it it wasn't just that they knew nothing, but they were elected because they knew nothing Mm -hmm. that was kind of this problem. And I posted a a story on Twitter this week from meeting a few of these guys (laughs) when I was still at a large firm at the time. The Know Nothing Caucus? Um, Well, one of my friends who was the head of our financial services practice was hosting a breakfast for two of these Tea Mm. Party guys Mm. who were like very pleasant men – who had no experience in anything, who were and like put on the financial services committee, sound of course. like that great be, candidates. That also
2: is
0: like could explain like many many interactions oh, in business. Sure. Yeah, two very pleasant men. <laughs> yeah. no like,
1: experience. In anything. But this was like it was like a month into the it was a month into the sort of public discussion of yeah. uh, Republicans were like, well, why should we raise the? No, it's irresponsible. And, um, and so, you know, there was some meet and greet thing and my friend was hosting. He's like, I'm worried there's going to be nobody there because these guys, will you come? And I was sure, like I know so much about any of these issues. But I went and I was sitting there. And so like a bunch of really important Washington people, people who fund these people's campaigns, people who want to work with them on legislation, were sitting there trying to ask them questions. And these poor guys, very nice, lovely men, were just like – Looking around, like, I feel like I showed up in the wrong cloud. Like, is this my schedule? Like, what am I doing here? And finally, one of them just goes to the to the guy who was hosting, who is a wizard of financial sort. You know, well, you probably know more than we do. What do you think would happen if we if we uh don't raise the debt ceiling? And he just sort of like side-eyes them and is like, you know, well, I think you could go home and you could explain to your constituents that their 401ks would collapse immediately, that uh, many of them may lose their jobs or be laid off, that, you know, just sort of like—and ticks off like 10 things that—basic talking points. And it was—what was so painful to me in this, as a person who cares nothing at all about any of this at the time, right? Like, I just wanted to go and fight Russia. Like, it was so painful about this was was understanding these guys hadn't done any homework, like, as members of the Financial Services Committee had no idea, that the Republican Party had done nothing— to like the, the talking points they were giving were the Fox News talking points of raising the debt ceiling as irresponsible spending, which is total nonsense, right? And, um, and that's what these guys were repeating because their constituents were throwing it at their faces. But the Republican Party had done nothing, like the caucus in the House, the party in general had done nothing to give them the five points you need to say to people. I understand. I agree with you. We need to be more responsible about spending. But we need to be able to do this or you're going to lose your job. Like, just – They didn't have that. And the administration had not done anything to like send treasury people to these new people and try to give them the five talking points, you know. And like understanding at that moment, like how dumb this whole discussion. And and again, as a person who doesn't want to have to think about any of this stuff, I just want to go to my own thing. Understanding how broken this had all become and now seeing that this is like the fifth or sixth iteration of this debt ceiling conversation we've had since then. But then it was like this, uh, I don't know, are we going to do this? And now it's this wanton. We're not going to do this. You do it, Democrats. We don't care. They literally don't care if yeah. there is economic no. cataclysm in this country because they think it's good for their politics. So,
2: Miss McConnell, I would assume does care because he's smarter than. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I th- but 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 doesn't care enough. It seems. And and I think that one of the things I just want to make this point is that what Molly's talking about just underscores for me a point that John Dickerson has made multiple times. Wrote a book about it, uh, about how the the chasm that exists between the skills it takes to campaign and win public office and the skills it takes to actually govern and 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 write policy. And I don't know, that's just there's no point. It's just it's frustrating. Go ahead.
0: Well, you, you and I talked about the debt yeah. ceiling months ago we did. on a quick phone call.
2: <laughs> we said the train is coming down the tracks. <laughs> <laughs> and so
0: it was <laughs> But, but That was so, a
2: tapped call for our listeners in the Politicology <laughs> Plus community.
0: And so, you know, Irresponsible spending, as 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 Molly says, raising the debt ceiling is not the same as irresponsible spending. Irresponsible spending is irresponsible spending, right? And raising the debt ceiling, just to be clear, means you decide and signal, yes, we are going to continue to meet the obligations that we already have, right? We took on eight trillion new debt dollars in new debt under Trump, and a lot of the spending that we need to cover our costs, our cover via raising the debt ceiling, is spending that came from Republicans and Republican administrations and Republican members of Congress. So when we talk about raising the debt ceiling, we should be clear that it is not the same as a new spending bill. It's about meeting our obligations so that we don't, you know, default on uh, bonds, uh, paying people's social security, uh, all the things that keep our economy intact. And I think there's a real misconception That brinksmanship Mm -hmm. over the debt ceiling is fine as long as at the end of the day, you know, October 18th, whatever, whatever the day is, that we're covered on that day. So everything that happens until then is all gravy and is fine. And that is what Republicans are doing right now. But that is really irresponsible. And we have pretty clear precedent from the era that Molly is referencing from 2011 when S&P downgraded the U.S. credit rating because of this brinksmanship. So we can't afford that situation again. Unfortunately, we're already in it. But I think it's really important to to make that distinction when you hear people talking about the debt ceiling, that we are not talking about taking on new debt in the form of new spending. We're talking about Covering what we're talking we've about paying the committed. credit card bill.
2: We put all well, the right. we ex- spent all this exactly money. It. We're just not talking about paying the bill.
1: It's like we need to borrow that money to pay the debt we already have, or we're not paying our bills, or we can take it out of your Social Security. Which would you yeah, rather which have? Which would you like? And that's, I mean, there's not either we borrow money to cover our debt or we take it from Americans. Like, yep. there's no alternative to this. And yes. like, nobody wants to. I mean, it's very simple to explain in basic terms, actually is even is as a very... congressman who doesn't understand. Yes. But and, and it should be a basic household issue for voters. You can explain. You have to—you know, You use the—you use your gas. You got to pay the gas bill, right? Like, so do we. And, you know, it just—it's not—it's not complex, but it's become this absurd brinksmanship, brinksmanship issue, as Lucy said. And, like, it just—to it, 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 me, it's so dumb. It's like having a stupid standoff— over whether the country will collapse over the naming of a post office. Like this is how dumb this vote used to be. Like of course you vote to raise the debt ceiling. If you want to have a debate at the same time about the scope of our spending and where fine, do that. But like you gotta do the vote. But you still and this do thing the vote where like every Republican is like, I'm not gonna do the vote. I don't actually So what they're saying is <laughs> I am voting for if the US economy collapsed and took down the global economy with it. That's fine with me. Yeah. And the fact that they get away with it and that this like gets them on TV and that this gets them votes is appalling. Yeah.
2: Okay. Let's leave it there because we don't know how these votes are going to play out today. There's a lot of uncertainty in the air. So we will come back to this topic when news breaks.
1: And if any Republican votes for it, I bet (laughs) they will not. (laughs) They
2: probably will not. Over the last few weeks... The Wall Street Journal has dropped a series of articles based on a review of internal Facebook documents that show the tech giant's internal researchers identified the harmful impact it can have. In an investigation called The Facebook Files, the journal has shown that Facebook has buried the negative findings of its own internal investigations, prompting renewed calls for greater transparency. On Tuesday, the House Science Committee held a special hearing on social media research and disinformation titled Disinformation Black Box. During the hearing, Northeastern University professor Alan Mislove called for two proposals that have already been introduced in Congress. One is to mandate companies to vet their algorithms for bias and resolve discrepancies, and one requiring social media platforms to develop and maintain an ad library that's accessible to researchers and regulators. And after the recent wave of criticism, Facebook has put the brakes on a child-focused Instagram product for users 13 and younger. There's a piece that came out this week, uh, in the Atlantic by Adrian LaFrance calling for us to treat Facebook like a hostile foreign power. We've talked a lot about Facebook on this podcast. And so this feels like, uh, you know, rather than reprise a lot of the stuff we've said earlier, I want to, I want to, want to take this fresh frame that Adrian lays out, um, Last year, in the in the article she notes, last year, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said that it feels like you're negotiating with a foreign power when you interact with Mark Zuckerberg. We've seen the impact that Facebook can have on spreading misinformation. We saw how Cambridge Analytica was able to use Facebook data to use in the 2016 campaign. We've seen the role Facebook has played in the rise of conspiracy theories and in the ongoing attacks on democracy. So I want to spend a little time on this one. Molly, uh, I want to start with you. Can you first help us think about what it would take to view and treat Facebook like a hostile foreign power, and just your general thoughts on Adrian's framing in this 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 piece.
1: Yeah, I, I very much agree with this framing. And the reason I agree with the framing more than anything else is if you talk to, like, the Facebook core folk, uh, not, not the nice researchers that spin off and tell us about all the data that we should have known about but don't know about, um, if you— it, the essential view of Zuckerberg and the people who support him is the competition to Facebook is not similar products, it is governments. And they say that very openly. And they understand it. And it's why they deal with governments the way that they do, why they do these sometimes very questionable deals with places to maintain access to them. Um, You know, in the U.S., we spend a lot of time focused on U.S.-related Facebook stuff, which makes sense because a ton of their revenue is from the U.S. and yada, yada, yada. But as we debate and analyze the impact of Facebook on our democracy and maybe Western Europe's democracies, Um, what we don't really talk about very much is the impact of Facebook in Africa and in Latin America and in Southeast Asia, um, where all of the things that here people kind of pay attention to, and if you remember back in 2016 where there was like, what do you mean Facebook employees were sitting in Donald Trump campaign helping them target all these things, you know? That is the norm in all of these other countries to help ruling parties, many of whom are not democratic, right? And so if you're looking at the way Facebook has impacted democracy, small d democracy across the world, incredibly destructive. And they just get away with it because nobody cares. And there'll be like one researcher in Kenya who's like, "Um, Facebook was helping the government squash opposition and dissent during the election. And... Uh, everybody's like, oh, yeah, okay. But like, then it just like disappears. But I mean, the, the data points across the globe are terrible. And I think what we know, what we have learned, if you look at the last decade of Facebook, right, the revenue went from nothing for a tech company to a gazillion dollars now, whatever it is, like near $100 billion a year or something. Um, uh, during that time was the time when the Russians decided facebook was a neat place to be to run all of their anti-democratic work right when all of these guys like steve bannon discovered that you can do all of these psyop related activities on facebook you know so in the period when yes you can point to like the two successful revolutions that organized on social media or whatever you have Global erosion of democracy, global rise of anti-democratic, illiberal forces that organize using social media, that that put their messages forth on social media. And then, like, conspiracy theories and erosion of truth and, you know, norms and values, totally separate from any of that. Um, the The last decade in which Mark Zuckerberg has been advancing whatever his borderless nation that he talks about and his conceptual things has happened has been... Bad for freedom, <laughs> and I ju- there's just no way around that. When they view the the challenge to governments with currency valuations, with uh, you know uh, setting norms, influencing legislation, influencing elected officials. Um, like, the data points are all there. I mean, it's clear they view governments as competition and and ones they can easily win because they have money and they have this, uh, you know, PSYOP machine that they point at people to change their minds.
2: Well, and they have people, which he started calling them. And what I appreciated about this framing, uh, the way Adrian laid it out was, was you know, here, here are the things that make up a nation. Here's the things you, that you need yep. if you want to have a nation state, right? And they've got all of them, including more people than India and China combined. And yep. it's just when you start to think about it in those terms, it is, it is, it is sort of, it's very alarming to me. So um, Lucy disagrees and I can't (laughs) wait. I can't wait Uh, because here's what I want. I mean, tell me all of the reasons that you, that you disagree with the framing, but in particular, the thing that characterizes the intentions of Mark Zuckerberg for me the most are, was the report in this piece that he Um, One of his very early mantras at Facebook was company over country, which obviously should remind a lot of us of the refrain country over party that we were all singing last year. And I I wonder what you think about that.
0: Well— I'll say that I think rejecting the framing of Facebook as a nation state or as a wannabe nation state does not mean that I think that (laughs) Facebook is like this benevolent force or that I think Mark Zuckerberg is this fabulous, good actor, right? I mean, I think that that's an odd slogan, right? But, But some of this, I guess I'd say a few things. One, I think that In that Atlantic piece, I think LaFrance is kind of splitting hairs over stuff that are are, represent kind of like trends in technology companies. Like, yeah, calling your users people, that's kind of just sort of community-driven. It's like why we, instead of saying customer service, we say customer success. And we'll say that, um, you know, customer success people are community managers, right? That's a trend in tech marketing. And we could have a conversation about whether or not That represents something more nefarious, but a lot of that is not so unusual. I also, I totally don't dispute that Facebook has an unbelievable market share and and arguably no competitors, and we could also have the antitrust discussion. Um, And I would point out that when we talk about Facebook's users, we are talking about across their their platforms, right? Which would be Facebook, Instagram, also WhatsApp. And so once you start pulling those in, that kind of the 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 daily active users or monthly active users, those kinds of stats that we talk about when we're talking about tech companies, like how often is someone going and logging on and using it as opposed to like a person who has an account and never logs in again. Those are a little bit skewed because I think primarily when we're talking about disinformation, we're talking about people going on mm-hmm. facebook.com and the just crazy banana stuff that we see that is harmful. But I would say that I think that there are a lot of products and brands that have a huge market share and billions of users, right? Like Samsung,
1: mm-hmm. Apple,
0: right? And so I I always want to be careful about these frames, in part because I think that the 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 if we start accepting that frame, then the solutions become kind of dangerous. Like solutions like um, we must require a company like Facebook to make its algorithms transparent, um or I mean, I'm really oh. uncomfortable with the idea that we're entitled to own our Facebook data. I think that has a lot of other implications. And so I'm not at all taking away from the idea that a lot of bad has come from Facebook. Um, I also think some good has come from Facebook. But to me, the ugliness of Facebook, and I, I actually was thinking a lot about this because I'm halfway through, your conversation with Tom Nichols oh. um, in the episode you dropped this week and and kind of talking about the dangers of populism, I, I think we should not mistake, I think Facebook represents the collision of a populist movement with technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that we should not necessarily mistake Facebook as the cause of some of this stuff, but that it is, Facebook is an ugly manifestation of that tech-enabled dangerous form of populism.
2: Okay. So then my question to you becomes what, and and this is something that LaFrance raises in the piece, we want companies like this to be aligned with the public interest. And Facebook is clearly not, is what she says. I agree with her that at this point, Facebook's interests are not aligned with the public interest at all. And especially since it is now a platform for populism, not just in the United States, but, but across the world. What then is our role? And um, you know, two of these proposals, I think, sound seem perfectly reasonable. Uh, you know, like the the, the the like making their algorithms transparent. I I understand your concern with them, but is there you know, is there some conceivable way where we could set up some some version of a FISA court, like a black box on the government side that says nobody else gets to look at this, but a hand selected, uh, you know, handpicked group of people who know what's who who know how to how to evaluate these algorithms get to look and approve and, and basically, I, I don't know, is there some way that you see constructive regulation coming out of this? And the other piece of their black box is obviously that researchers can't, can't look at the harm that's being done. And Facebook is not going to be incentivized to not ever do any of their own research because it's damning and they know it and they don't want it out there. And if I was a public company, I probably wouldn't either. So it just feels like it's fighting a giant and you can't win. And that giant's going to squash us all.
0: Yeah, I agree um, that—so I come from libertarianism (laughs) way back when in another life. And I agree. There are a lot of examples, contemporary examples, of the ways in which kind of like the—maybe, let's say, 19th century, 18th century kind of idea of— of keeping government out of stuff doesn't work yeah. <laughs> in our modern um yeah. in our modern uh, context, right? We see that on climate. We see that in covid, right? Because you know the, Facebook is a public square, and we don't have, the ways of oh regulating God, such a
2: good point. Facebook yeah. in the
0: way that we did yeah. before. And you see this around uh, questions like Section 230. Like, is Facebook a publisher? Is it not? Whatever, whatever. So I understand that, you know, my gut is to say, like, leave these companies alone. And I understand that may not work here. I think the black box kind of uh, sort of board who's looking at it idea also is problematic because who are those people and how do we know who they are and how do we know that they're not – captured by Facebook but the the bigger problem that i don't know how to solve is that fundamentally what you need and this is not just an issue with Facebook this is across the board is citizens informed mm. citizens who don't want to be sucked in by this and this goes to yeah. the theme with tom yeah, in that episode does. people don't care they're apathetic so i've thought like what about if we mandated um sort of like easier, more transparent language around terms of service. And we, you know, make companies be more responsible about that. I, I don't know that it would make a difference. I don't mean to be like head in the sand, so, but
1: yeah, I, I'm going to give go a ahead. hard pushback on the Facebook is like buying a Coke. It's not. And, and like Facebook isn't a product being sold to you. And like, yes, there's some psychology of the Coca-Cola ads with the condensation beads that make you really thirsty for a nice cold Coca-Cola. But like Facebook is a behavioral engineering construct. Like That is what it is. It is very transparent. That's what it is. That's why it exists. Initially, that was so you would go and, like, click the buttons and make all of your interactions with other humans about clicking buttons and not about actually interacting with people. But now it is a vastly more sophisticated product uh, that is, in fact, designed to shift and alter human behavior in very specific ways. And they're happy to sell that to whoever wants to use it. And so this idea that, like— Oh, it's fine, like people just need to read more. And then this, like, no, it's a it's a PSYOP machine. It is meant to affect your psychology in ways that bypass all of the defensive mechanisms that you have to look at: is this true? Is this real? Is it not? Where is it coming from? It is meant to bypass all of your citizen defenses and how you accept information, which is why it is so much worse than, you know, it's not just the public square. If if the if the research is well, 64% more people became Nazis because they found the shit on Facebook, excuse the language, like Facebook put the ad, like put the content in front of them that encouraged them to go that direction and join the the Nazi groups, then it's not just the public square. It's like, it's like changing the way people make decisions and the way they behave. Well, it's all,
2: sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's
1: fine. I was just going
2: to say it is a tool that, I have used in that capacity Absolutely. in political campaigns and have spent probably tens, dozens of millions of dollars on Facebook advertising, persuading people to vote for or against a particular candidate. I've done that. has you know- probably done that. But, and you know I don't what know to, do. but like, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but I mean, it, we, but as marketers, what marketers love, marketers no, love Facebook just, for this reason. I've just
0: actually taken in a ton of Facebook data <laughs> and then matched up <laughs> against right. the voter file. <laughs> yes,
2: right? So, like, it's not like we are unfamiliar with these tools and how they are used and how they can be exploited, and particularly in PSYOPs campaigns, although we don't really call them that. But, but that's, that's what it is. But I think, that's think what this is, is the problem, right? is it's
1: to the point where... You know, Facebook's BS answer to everything is like, well, if people don't like it, they'll get off our product they, and someone they will they go somewhere else. They are getting off of it. Right, right. But like they are. with That's, the, yeah. the 2.7 billion or whatever is still the number. But like if we're talking about in the context of everything else we discuss, yeah. you know, every American needs to care about X, Y, Z things in terms yeah. of this is not about policy. It's, not, it's about freaking saving our democracy. Then like. A step of that has to be denormalizing the idea that Facebook is something we should be pouring money and attention into. And yeah. we should get off of it. Like, I have never been on Facebook. I encourage no one else to be on Facebook. Uh, and I think that, that political campaigns in particular should really debate with themselves whether this is what they're going to do. Because they understand what they're doing is oh using God. damaging tools. Yeah, Damaging that's, tools to reach voters. That's
2: very interesting because I can't imagine a modern political campaign not using Facebook, of course period. not. period, like full stop. No. Absolutely not. You will not win. Which should you cannot tell advertise, you, you cannot, about what it is. It, it should tell you a lot about what it is. Okay. Uh, I, um, that's actually a conversation. We should just have that conversation at some point, like on a sidebar, because I think people would be interested in understanding exactly how all of that works. Um, <laughs> but, but, Sorry for the rant, um, <laughs> I have one more, I have one more sort of theme I want to, I want to touch while we're on this topic, which is money. And I don't mean like dollars. I mean digital money. I mean, and you guys know and listeners know, I think that I am um, uh, acutely interested in the emerging financial uh, system, systems, uh, decentralized finance, cryptocurrencies. Um, And I don't think that most people realize Facebook is actively trying to create their own currency, their own currency, which... Goes back to the framing of a nation state. He's trying to create all of the ingredients to essentially. And by the way, this is not just a. There's a there's a thing now that is called a, distri- a DAO, DAO, distributed or decentralized autonomous organization, which is which is essentially a new form of digital governance where people can groups of people can make decisions based on uh, what they want the organization to do. And you see this now in, um, in the NFT space where people, groups of people are joining distributed autonomous organizations, it might be decentralized, uh, where the members then essentially vote without any central leadership on how they're going to invest their money and et cetera. Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook vision for, say, Facebook seems to be a decentralized nation state with its own currency. And it's really hard for me to understand Okay, yes, lots of good has come from Facebook. They have connected lots of people everywhere. Communities have been able to find each other. Um, I don't dispute any of that. I just worry profoundly that we're not going to recognize the public interest boundaries before the thing has gotten way too big and and out of our control. Maybe we're already there. Maybe it's too late. I don't know. But what do you think of when, when you think about Facebook creating its own currency.
0: Well, Facebook is not the only tech giant trying to get into cryptocurrency or alternate forms of currency, and also uh, other and ent- other <laughs> entities out there, like financial institutions, are also trying to create their own currencies or backing specific um, alternate currencies. You know, like the J.P. Morgan of the world. And so, I think that in general, there are broader questions about any of these ent- entities creating there their are. own currencies and um right. questions about oversight and and questions about you know is it this sort of utopian <laughs> scenario yeah. or is it not so i think all of those questions apply to facebook as well i'm probably a little bit i am slightly less concerned about this because i do see facebook as a platform that i mean 0.8% user growth which is their what they are projecting this year sucks. But well, when That's you have bad. like a third of
2: the world's population. That's
0: true, <laughs> yeah, That's true. but that is bad. That yeah. is a bad number, right? And they're cushioning a lot of their of a lot of their growth through new users of things like WhatsApp. It's hard to get mm-hmm. exact data, but so in general I don't I'm I'm not convinced that the future is Facebook. I'm just not.
2: I hope not. Okay. Well, Let's leave it there. Last week, we talked about the American companies that pledged to train and hire Afghan refugees. And today we're going to talk about the reporting we've seen about life in Afghanistan under the Taliban regime. The new Taliban-appointed chancellor for Kabul University announced on Monday that women will be banned indefinitely from the institution as instructors or students. He said... As long as a real Islamic environment is not provided for all, women will not be allowed to come to universities or work. Islam first. This harkens back to the policies under the Taliban in the 1990s, when women could only be in public if they were accompanied by a male relative and were barred from attending school. And we've also heard recently some horrific stories about Afghanistan's LGBTQ community being hunted down by the Taliban, and they are living in fear of being killed. Many LGBTQ Afghans and their families have gone into hiding since the Taliban took over Kabul in August. Um, Molly, we talked about Afghanistan at length uh, recently. Um, How should we be thinking about the humanitarian crises multiple That we're now seeing in Afghanistan?
1: Uh, I mean, there's a lot of backward-looking stuff that you can say that isn't going to be helpful at this point. But I think regardless of what we all think or don't think about how we got to this point, there's now this set of unpleasant, unsavory decisions that the Biden administration has set up for itself at this point. And There's a strong faction within the administration that is arguing for more engagement with the Taliban. So we have influence on the ground or whatever. Um, And there's obviously lots of other people who are like, "Uh, but uh, I don't think that's doable here. And, you know, they want to have nice language. Yes, yes, we have left Afghanistan, but, you know, we will have stronger humanitarian aid. No, you're not. We don't have an embassy there. We have no way to spend that money. We just pulled out every person we trained over the last 20 years, you know, doing this work. We have no way to spend money there. We have no way to distribute funds. Like, everything we do is now dependent on someone else. And so this this idea that there's going to be this, like, you know, buckets of humanitarian aid will cushion the blow of allowing the Taliban to absorb this country again. No, that's not going to happen. It's back to the Stone Ages. Women stay home. You know, there's going to be huge food shortages. There's going to be massive currency problems. Banks are going to collapse. Who cares because it's the Taliban? You know, they're like running around in their trucks shooting yeah. into the air with their American guns now. And, like, you know, this this idea that there's going to be, like a way to somehow make this less bad than yeah. it actually is is just not true. I mean, the, the not th- true. The thing that like just caught my
2: eye as I was preparing for today was it just a random CNN article. Where it just says, um, where, where someone is quoted as a Taliban spokesperson. Yeah. You don't yeah. get to have a spokesperson.
1: Well, but. Or, like, why, from Gitmo, why are we now right?
2: legitimizing? that? Like, that's, that's what's so frustrating to me about this whole thing. They're killing gay people.
1: They're killing gay people. And they're killing women. They're killing musicians. They're going around with the lists of the women musicians and, like, pointing out to them that it's time to forcibly marry a Taliban fighter. Right? Like. All of the stuff that was happening before is happening now. And so it's really hard for a progressive-leaning Democratic administration and party to not have something to say about Afghanistan. And you know who's been real quiet about Afghanistan? The progressives. Like, they Mm -hmm. got nothing to say about what's happening to women. They got nothing to say about what's happening to gays. Like, nothing to say. Because they know— the administration's policy is that door is closed. No more Afghans are leaving. We're not running, you know, evacuations. We're not bringing people out. We're not approving anything. We're not letting anybody else help them. And uh, so we've created this like wonderful prison run by the Taliban, in which all of the people who were people who had vague aspect like Afghanistan was never like a vibrant LGBT community right but like but like the hope that you weren't going to die by being tortured or hacked to death in the street is dissolved now
2: but like after 20 years of it being kind of okay for you to live as yourself and not be killed for it now being taken away like we we did that just we we did that
1: and we're not leaving a door open, which for me is this problem now is like, again, I have issues about how we left and all these other things, but we don't have the structures in place for, you need to have the valve. Like there has to be the one door that remains open that we are endorsing and funding and funneling people out, sending them to countries that will take them. There are countries that will take them and we're telling them not to. And it's just madness. So this whole thing is just like, it's all going to explode on itself.
2: But Lucy, the question is Will Americans care?
0: It's funny you say that because <laughs> as you were talking about this, I was remembering a wonderful Philip Larkin poem called Homage to a Government. And it mm. has. Won't oh, please, this, no. The poem says Next year we are to bring all the soldiers home for lack of money, and it is all right. Places they guarded or kept orderly must guard themselves and keep themselves orderly. We want the money for ourselves at home instead of working, and this is all right. It's hard to say who wanted it to happen, but now it's been decided nobody minds. The places are a long way off, not here, which is all right, and from what we hear, the soldiers there only made trouble happen. Next year, we shall be easier in our minds. Next year, we shall be living in a country that brought its soldiers home for lack of money. The statues will be standing in the same tree-muffled squares and look nearly the same. Our children will not know it's a different country. All we can hope to leave them now is money."
1: Yeah, basically that. Wow.
0: I'm not a I'm not a neocon.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I uh am probably about as close to being an isolationist as you can without becoming like a sort of scary America first type. Yeah. But it is really disturbing and I think that the congressional testimony in the last week of top congr- of top military brass who were saying we were advising uh that say leave 2500 troops there right just keep a a foothold it's we're in such a bad situation now because we don't have a foothold other western countries are reopening their embassies the us is not blinken talks about the strings that we're going to attach to aid because we have to send aid but we're not going to be able to attach strings and we've seen that before and so it is really it is really disappointing and no, I don't think anyone is going to care. And I I think that it it probably will not have long-term political ramifications, but it's it's um it is sad how it has unfolded. And thanks for letting me share that poem. I appreciate
2: that poem. Um <laughs> But it
1: does have these broader ramifications. And yeah. like like what are we doing now because we have zero base access in yeah. the entirety of Central Asia? Yeah. Oh, we're talking to the Russians again. Like we're not talking to the Russians about what what Belarus is is doing to sh- push migrants into the baltic states we're not talking to russia about the other like the brain rays they're using to zap american intelligence officers and diplomats we're talking to russia about like oh please sir can we use your stupid bases in central asia because we closed ours and it's like are you freaking kidding me right now like we're we're for 20 years putin with the dangling apple of work with us on terrorism and it'll be so great and it's like, yeah, but the way you work on terrorism is just by killing all those people. Mm. I mean, literally, like, killing all the people. And, um, and like, we can't work with—like, it's nonsense, this idea that we can work with Russia on terrorism. We don't agree what terrorists are. You know what I mean? Yeah. And but yet we're back in this boat of, like, now we have to negotiate with the Russians again for access to Afghanistan. Why? Like, how did we put ourselves in this position with all the other stuff we need from Russia? We're in the police, sir. Can I have another position again? Like— So the the idea that this has no consequences, and I know American voters don't really care and they're not paying attention to it, but I do think there has been this outpouring of help from Americans. People want to help the refugees. Companies are trying to help the things. I think the messaging that comes from that will have this sort of ongoing presence in America. Americans love the idea that we're generous, kind-hearted people Mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, are doing good things for others. And so I think that will have resonance. And the idea that there's not going to be bad stories on the other side, that like when the mass killings start, there's not going to be footage and photos and recordings and like that's not true. This is how
2: they kill gay people. They tie them up and lay them on the dirt and then they build a 10 foot high concrete wall and then they push the concrete wall over on top of the person. That's what they do. So what can Americans do?
1: Um, I think right now, for me, on Afghanistan, uh, not to get diverted into the Blinken-Sullivan talking points of we're going to have strings on the Yeah, we're not going to have strings on the lead, um, is It's this pipeline, right? Like, there needs to be a very clear, like there's something I outlined that's like 10 points, but like, for the next year, at least, we are aggressively helping people who need to leave or they will die or be forcibly married to Talib fighters and rape for the rest of their lives. Like, let's just put that out there. Um, anybody who wants to leave, we're going to sort that out. We're not going to do the like, oh, if you have proper documents, right. we're going to get you out first. We're going to yeah. sort that shit out. You know, we'll figure out where you need to go. But like, you know, after the Vietnam War, we took a million people. Like, uh, when Syria was freaking collapsing under Russian-Syrian bombing campaigns and millions of Syrians had to be absorbed into Europe, and they really did it without a lot of complaining. Like, there was a yeah. lot of—it yeah. it was really traumatic, but they did it without a lot of complaining. And we're sitting here like, oh, 40,000 Afghans. Yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Like, this—we know—we we all know this is our doing. Like, yeah. we went there. We got into it. We didn't get in and then leave. Like, this is us. We created the hope in these people— they could have a different life. And now they're dying because we gave them that hope. We have to get them out or to let them let them get out, you know, not close the doors, which is what we've done. We're telling other people not to move people out of Afghanistan. We're telling organizations that have raised the money, got the planes, sent the planes there not to move these people. Are you kidding me right now? So the, the Congress, if it is not heartless people who are absorbed in this echo chamber of no, no, Afghanistan was actually quite fine. Mm. Um It needs to do this. It needs to have a very quick—this is like a 10-point piece of legislation. There's no mystery here. For the next year, 18 months, two years, we will accept up to whatever it is, 2 million people. Like, put a number on it. You know, there's a lot of Afghans. But we will move them out. We will get them here. You know, we'll—the X period of time during which they have to be processed, you know, assign the personnel who have to do the verification of it. It's really complicated. I understand But there is not a lot of option here. And we know how to do this. We've done it before. If we can smuggle, you know, tens of thousands of Jews and religious minorities out of the Soviet Union because we knew we had to, we can do this here too. And so this idea that we're like closing the door and no, no, we're going to send you food aid. It's going to be fine. No, like food aid in prison is no good. And it is a prison. There's no way you can put any other icing on it right now. And so I just think for me, this is the most important thing. I understand, like this administration done, dusted. Like we're not going. Like, oh yeah, they moved on. But that needs to come from public pressure. It yep. needs to come from the Congress.
2: needs to come from you, dear listeners. It needs to come from you, dear listeners. <laughs> really? you, dear well, listeners. It, really? you
0: know, it can come from elevating the stories of people in your communities yes. who are Afghan refugees who all still have people there and still know family members or other people who are in danger there. And I've seen some really lovely feel-good coverage this week that people love of, you know, local papers mm-hmm. highlighting here's yep. who's here now in our town and this, yep. that, and the other thing. And so, keeping that drumbeat up, and and transitioning from that coverage to, and here are my you know ten close relatives who are at risk of death, yep. a brutal treatment from the Taliban, and here's a you know elevate the stories that are second degree stories, the stories of the people who are connected yeah. to the people who are now Americans. And yeah. approach it that way as yes. well. Elevate those stories.
2: Give them platforms to tell those stories. I'll do it on Facebook. Do it. <laughs> and there are these,
1: there are these like great stories. <laughs> there are these great stories, too. But, like, I mean, you know, some of the – at the end, the sort of crisis about the special immigration visas, but the civs, the people who work for us, our, our translators and whatnot, you know, many of those had to leave before because of the perpetual threats to kill all these people during the entire time they've worked for us. Um, And a lot of those guys, a lot of the translators that left who came here, uh, because they're all all young, they're young men, you know, they have no idea what to do in a new country. A lot of them have enlisted in the U.S. military. And so there's like Afghans who fought with us, who then ended up here, who are fighting for us now as new Americans, soon to be Americans. Um, And I think that should be a story that Americans hear more, that there's a lot of them that this wasn't, like, a job for them, then they walked away. Like, they're still there fighting for us because they believe in this, and we fought for them, and now they're fighting for us. And we just don't do a good job of understanding all of these different aspects. But I think we need to not let up on this. And um, as a nation of immigrants, as much as some people never want to hear about this again— Uh, as a nation of uh, uh, many new immigrants coming from distant parts that we never thought would be a part of the American fabric, um, we have moral duties to these people, especially to very specific groups of people who are now highly at risk because of what we did in Afghanistan. And um, if we don't own that, we don't get to sit around and talk about, like, we're supporting human rights in the world anymore. Like. And we don't like, get this to talk is the about, test yeah. of the supporting of human rights. Yeah. Um, and if we actually are not willing to have th- to, to assume the duties and responsibilities that we know are ours, then it's a, a failure that we will not live down because those deaths will be a list that are under our flag. It'll be another data point
2: in the decline of America. Absolutely. Now that we're up to speed on a few <laughs> of the biggest stories of this week, let's turn to what we're watching under the radar. Molly, what do you have for us?
1: Oh, the under the the what aren't we paying attention yeah. to stories. What are we not paying
2: attention to that we should um, be that's going to influence our politics in
1: some way? You know, I think for me, and I, I've already mentioned it, so I, I, I blew my wad on that one, but um, in the hearings, which Lucy has already mentioned, uh, that were uh, various generals speaking before various armed services committees, um uh, primarily about Afghanistan. But there were these few, there were a few other mentions kind of thrown in there about, but what are we actually doing now as the United States with this supposedly new strategy looking towards Asia, whatever? Um uh, the, the point to me that was the most interesting was this sort of casual aside of, oh, we're negotiating with Russia on access to like air base access for Afghanistan. Where it's like so in the in the cause to me it's like in this fabric of things. That we see the administration pointing toward, which is climate change, ephemeral human rights. I forget what their third thing they're always talking about is. But, like, it's all this globally, globally stuff. They've convinced themselves you can't do anything on this without Russia and China is the bottom line. And, I mean, the Russia part is just nonsense most of the time. But um, it's like this idea that, like, this sort of great gamesmanship is the answer to things is really going to miss the point on the ground in terms of our bilateral relationships, our relationships with allies, how we manage all of these relationships, how we manage the view of America in the world, um, and so that that for me was like this really interesting like what are we actually doing with mm. with Russia and China right now? I would really like more more like transparency on that because I don't feel mm. like we have a lot yet. Uh in the very sparsely manned state department and uh, the very tightly controlled messaging from the administration, so there was stuff that came out of those hearings, like many separate points that are worth kind of digging into in terms of the what are we doing on all of these international things. but the the Russia point in particular was a really interesting one to me uh, in terms of, okay, we're bringing all these u s troops home. What are we doing now? And like, why is that the thing we're talking about is yeah. sort of a very interesting piece for me. Good flag. Lucy?
0: Those are so—all of those are so interesting with everything we've talked about today because I think it reflects, if I may, it Mm. reflects a kind of governing context that's really changed. And you referenced earlier progressives and what the hell are they doing on Afghanistan. But we're in this moment on a whole bunch of issues where, I mean, for instance, with the infrastructure stuff, progressives suddenly have much more power because of our complete lack of bipartisanship. Like, Republicans have actually given— Progressives' power, and so if if that's your cup of tea, that's great. But you now have all these wings that don't know what to do because they've never been in power, and you have because just because of having a massively dysfunctional Republican Party, which means that all of these, every one of these issues is going to be kind of ephemeral to some degree, and a, a governing caucus that was really never meant to be the governing caucus in power mm-hmm. in in a lot of ways. Um my under the radar story yeah. is that uh is just because I've been talking about unicorn tech unicorns gone ba- bad is the story of Aussie Media which uh is this I honestly had not really had a sense of what the hell Aussie Media is but yeah, it's this really. would be unicorn company that has all these deals with other media companies They've raised $70 million in A more successful
2: funding.
0: Quibi. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A more successful Quibi. Look that up. Um, deals with YouTube, allegedly. Deals with uh, traditional media outfits. Um prominent journalists from—and it turns out it was all a massive sham also, like Theranos. I'm just going <laughs> to the time I come on the roundup, I'm going to say
2: like a— You're going to find a way to work in Elizabeth Holmes. Totally. <laughs>
1: but it gets
0: much worse than that because it turns out—and there's a big expose of this in the New York Times this week by Ben Smith. Um, it's much worse than that. It gets really, really— um really sorted because it turns out that the chief operating officer of Aussie last year sometime when they were closing in on a 40 million dollar funding round led by Goldman Sachs arranged for a call to include a YouTube exec um, to to sort of voucher how great Aussie's numbers were. And the it's the the call got a little weird. And like the the YouTube exec was like, oh I emailed like I can't be on video, so I'm gonna do it via audio and then it turned out that actually the chief operating officer of Aussie was was this was all made up the youtube executive was never going to be on this call had no intention of being involved in this deal at all was basically doing a, a digital altering of his own voice and claiming to be the the youtube executive and when 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 it sounded weird the the digital alter i mean this is fraud this is, this fraud. is fraud the fbi is now investigating I am, I am
2: i am a gape so
0: so <laughs> as all of this was happening, you know amazing. this yeah it's really something. As all of this was was happening, uh it's it like something went wrong with the voice whatever tool he was using <laughs> and it started sounding like a recording and that is only through that is how this came out and and all kinds of stuff and this also would never have come out. So someone got in touch with YouTube, Goldman was like this seems sketchy But none of this would have come out had it not been for this Ben Smith piece this week. And there are all kinds of other reasons to be very suspicious of this company. You know, for instance, like the company has almost a million Instagram likes, but then they have like 46, they'll get like 46 likes per post, which is like about what I get when I post photos of my dog and I have a (laughs) few hundred. All of this is to say, it's another great sort of sordid story of Silicon Valley gone wrong. But I mention it because this has big implications for us because these are, if, if we're going to stay with the nation state frame, mm-hmm. we are giving tech companies so much power now Yes, and they're raising gobs of money and there's so much capital mm-hmm. and a lot of it is at best vaporware or something kind of nefarious, but these are companies that are becoming really, really integral in our in how we operate, yes. I'm not willing to go the kind of autocracy idea, but but they are very very influential, and the just complete lack of oversight. When you think it about the speed with which they become entwined in our phones, uh, the data they're collecting about us, all of this is bananas.
2: But then, oh, if you wait add till in... we talk about Clearview,
1: <laughs> 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 <But if laughs> add in the crypto thing on this, this yeah. is where it gets even more interesting. Because like we all know, the entire tech industry is like. The you know, creation of imaginary wealth that echoes around itself, creating more imaginary wealth. And it's like this vast, like I mean, you look at it and it's just like comical that the the assumption and the reason the thing works mm-hmm. except for the fake call gets exposed is the assumption is, well, they don't really need to be doing anything. Like most of these companies don't do anything for the first five <laughs> years. We should just keep pouring money in, you know. <laughs> but like when you then add crypto on top of that and it's and they get to create and control their own wealth in other ways. So there's like a new, like another revenue stream in there. And that, that revenue stream also then weakens the global cloud of the United States by, by moving money away from the dollar. Like, th- there's so many other aspects to this that just get worse and worse. That but, is a yeah. whole <laughs> ball of yarn I, I can't I wait. I don't to, think we're going
0: to solve this. We're not going to
1: solve that today.
2: But we are going to we are going to talk about this so much more. Also, we're, we probably should just do something on Clearview, specifically on Clearview. Anyway, Lucy, Molly, before we go to the after party, a.k.a. Politicology Plus. Where can everybody find you on the internet?
0: I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell.
1: Uh, Twitter at Molly McHugh, M-C-K-E-W, or greatpower.us.
2: And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond